How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 172. Did you like, Zeke, that I was I was talking to you and then I, I saw you were about ready to go into the mic? And I was yep. like, let's I'll, I'll hold on to it. Yeah. And then, you know, when we finish recording, I'll immediately just start saying what I was saying before. Yeah, do you do you wanna do you wanna talk about the joke that you uh, dropped? I will, I will. All right, I'll just say that the the film of the week is <laughs> it's the only film we've ever done in this podcast that can be entirely googled using your calculator. <laughs> that is pretty crazy, though. Yeah, and you know what? If you type it into a calculator, fifty divided by fifty, it equals one, mm-hmm. and it's because it's the number one film ever made, Zeke. This is the number one <laughs> film ever made. No, not quite. Yeah. I think it's a very good film, but... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we jumped really, like, headfirst into some nerdy... Uh, how are you doing, Zeke? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'll, uh, I'll just try and redeem us with my trivia. Yeah. Oh, I got a real one. Don't worry. Oh, you have a real I one? I do have a real one, but you go first. You no, go. I, I'm good. I'm good. You're um, good? I'm, I'm, yeah, pretty chill, to be honest, watching, yeah. you know, bits and bobs films here and there. And, oh, that's... <laughs> That's good, uh, Bibs and Bobs. Struggling through a certain show, and I'll kind of jump into that. Oh. Season, I think season one's finished, but I'm going to put a question mark. Struggling through a show. Okay. Um, wow, you got me real curious now, actually. Yeah, it's a good hook, isn't it? You know but- what I almost started last night? Because obviously the Ozark um, series finales, it's all done now. They mm-hmm. put it out. And I knew a um, friend of the show, Blake, posted on his letterbox. They must have done like a behind-the-scenes farewell video. Mm-hmm. So he was able to log that on Letterboxd. And I saw a bunch of posts being like, people are really, really disappointed with the finale. So I messaged him. I said, well, you know, what's what's the deal? And he said he liked it quite a lot. He loves, like, a lot of the arcs and the production and everything. But it felt like it sort of ended... It feels like there was about 20 minutes left before it just ended. Mm. And that it, a lot of it feels slightly unresolved because of that, which is quite interesting. But for some reason, it almost made me go, I want to start watching it now even though I know the ending is apparently disappointing. <laughs> I'm going to invest myself in this show. So. There you uh, go. But, but I, I, I haven't bit the bullet quite yet. Well, before we jump into that, mm. or at least anything that you've watched in the last week, Jake, have you got a piece of trivia for the film of the week? I do. And, and the reason I picked this one is because it's a bit of a, a deep dive that I frankly didn't know about. So the original script for this film, which was entitled I'm With Cancer, there's actually a few different titles, for this, uh, was listed in the 2008 blacklist for the most liked unmade, I'm um, sorry, most liked unmade screenplays of the year. Now, apparently, this is a real list. There was an actual list, and I've got it up on here, this Wikipedia page, the blacklist brackets survey, as they call it, uh, for not necessarily the best, but the most liked unproduced screenplays that dates back to 2005. And yeah, it's all of these screenplays that at the time, and, and some of them to this day still haven't been produced, of people sort of unanimously agreeing, like, oh, these are really good scripts or really, you know, likable scripts who would like to see them made one day. Yeah, cool. And I'm looking at, like, 500 Days of Summer was in 2006, so it's a good three years before the film was made. Obviously, I, I just mentioned this film. Bohemian Rhapsody, all the way back in 2007. So there's a lot of really... Recently got added to Netflix. Oh, yeah, I, d- I did see that. I did see that, yeah. Burn After Reading, also 2007, although that was made only a year later. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this I'm looking at this list now. Do do yourselves a favor at home and look at this list because this is fascinating. And like we forget, I think, how commonplace these unmade, unproduced scripts are. Mm. They just sit in Hollywood and uh, sit around enough that a committee of people can make a list like this. 
So anyway, but that, that's my fun fact, is that 50-50 at one point was included in this list, about three years before the film was eventually produced. What about you, Zig? What's your fun fact for 50-50? Yeah, look, obviously you've identified the uh, one of the one of the original titles was uh, mm. Home With Cancer. I think, and as you've also pointed out, the Blacklist flat, uh, fact. Another really interesting one... Um, is which I found quite uh, interesting is Seth Rogen says that he was actually on the toilet when Will Riser, who the centerpiece of this film, yep. told him he had cancer. And as funny as both of them thought this was, uh, they thought it was kind of just a bit crude for this film. And it's you know, look, it's fair to say this this film actually does avoid, especially since you know it's obviously it likes to bill itself from the makers of Superbad. It's like and obviously having a Seth Rogen in there, there is a certain caliber of. Well, I guess expectation, you know, sure. I think this, this film, if you didn't, if you looked at the bill and you looked at the, even the premise to an extent, you might get an, a balance of something like funny people meets, um, sort of more of the crudeness, uh, stoner comedies of, of, you know, Pineapple Express, yeah, basically anything yeah. with Seth Rogen in it. Um, which I think this film has a little bit more substance to it. Oh, a hundred percent. I, and a bit of uh, emotional yeah. gravitas to it. Yeah, yeah. I having watched this film many, many, many times over the last decade. It came out, I think, two thousand eleven. I never saw. I knew like the whole Seth Rogen being in it was like an interesting factor for me. And and what I would have been, well, like thirteen, fourteen when I first saw this film. I don't. Well, did you watch it around the same time? No, then? first time I watched it was like a year or two ago. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think even back then I sort of knew that Seth Rogen was. It was like an interesting choice, but I never saw it in the same vein as like Pineapple Express, Super Bad. Um, even though I'm not sure it might have been penned like that in the trailers, for example. Um, but yeah, d- definitely a bit more substance in this film mm-hmm. <laughs> than, than some of Seth Rogen's other films. But like, like you said, it is sort of a Will, what is it, Real uh, Reisner, Riser sort of vehicle as the writer and sort of true life inspiration for the film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess uh, we'll dive into all of that later in the show. But Zeke, I have to ask, <clears throat> do you think this film's on the 1100 film poster behind you because you must watch in your lifetime do you think it deserves to be on the poster uh, i don't think it is and um no i wouldn't put it on mine personally fair enough my only real justification is i think the yeah i just think it's kind of a quaint film that mm. doesn't really sort of emotionally resonate with me um and even you know i'll touch on a little bit later on why i sort of see this film as kind of that perfect uh film you kind of bump into and enjoy when just scrolling through like a netflix or something like Mm. that but not something i would actively seek out to watch sure sure well i will say it is not on the poster um i think look as i actually have i re-watching it was interesting because this is probably the first time i've watched it in a few years um especially since you know us doing our film degree and, and doing mm-hmm. this show for example and obviously there's a lot more interoperable the film's definitely a lot more simple <laughs> than i might have gave it credit for a couple of years ago um it actually is very similar ironically to when we did don john on the podcast another film i had seen many many times leading mm-hmm. up to our review and then watching me like oh this is a bit more repetitive and, and simple than i remembered it being um that being said it does emotionally resonate with me a lot um, I've definitely cried watching this film in the past, so I probably would put it on my personal poster. But I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight you on it. <laughs> I'm not that emotionally invested in your opinion on the film, for example. Mm-hmm. Man, that sounded mean. <laughs> I don't care what you think, man. 
No worries. Well, before uh, we jump into that, Jake, what have mm. you caught in the last week? Uh, not a lot, Zeke. I did mention last week that Kangaroo Jack did come to bin last week. Did you watch so Kangaroo I did. Jack? I did watch. Okay, so I was... <laughs> this is last Tuesday. All right. Okay. And I ended up at, at uh, Blake's house and Stephen's over and we were sort of, you know, memeing around and having fun. And I'm like half interested in like, oh, let's all watch new, the new episode of Better Call Souls out. Let's watch it together. And as it turns out, for anyone who knows season six, episode three entitled Rock and Hard Place. For anyone who knows what episode that is, holy crap, did we miss out on some A-tier Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul content. But, you know, the boys were like, no, nah, let's watch Kangaroo Jack instead. <laughs> we didn't know what we missed, but uh, to be to be honest with Kangaroo Jack, it's a tough film to talk about because we did find it quite funny. We were actually having a fun time and laughing and there's some moments in there about... There's one scene in particular where there's a there's a propeller plane pilot who gets tranquilized and his legs stop working as he's flying the plane and like it's like f- dumb comedy mm. but like it actually is funny especially if you're around friends um, and for those who don't know it is centered around these two sort of Americans that are chasing a kangaroo that has like a patch of money in its pocket um, around the, the jacket that it's wearing so it's a very silly dumb premise to begin with the problem is the further along the film you get you realised it really didn't hold up well. <laughs> There's quite a lot of jokes in it that are really, wildly really... Inappropriate. Wildly inappropriate. Did not age well. Especially as Australians were like, oh dear. Like, I was ignoring the first few signs of, oh look, they don't understand Australians. That's funny. And, oh look, here's one other random American girl. And they're like, oh, you know, thank God I saw you. Yeah, Like... Kind of like, okay, whatever. Like, it's dumb. Like, they can't understand Australians, whatever. But then it gets to the scenes later on where they start saying, like, oh, so a character says, I hate this country like a sickness. <laughs> damn. What's the other quote? That, oh, it's the sphincter of the galaxy. It's, a, <laughs> it's wow. Australia. Um, there's one point where they like, we have to sneak up on the kangaroo so we don't startle him. At which point a bunch of white dudes paint themselves in indigenous markings. It's like, this is getting really indefensible. (laughs) It's really, it's not good, man. It's, it's. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one yeah. to defend. And mo- most of these things happen within like a 15-minute span as well. This, if they just cut those scenes out, <laughs> this could have been a really dumb, fun comedy. But anyway, it's, uh, Kangaroo Jack is a very problematic film, as it turns out. I guess I'm not too surprised by that. Yeah. Um, the other one, I didn't even really watch this, but I walked past, it was on TV the other day, I ended up watching like the first half again, was The Good Son, the 1993 um, McKelly Culkin, Elijah Wood Elijah Wood, yeah, Elijah Wood, uh, vehicle, if you will. Mm. Um, have you? Do you know what this film is at all? The Good Son. No. No. So it's I. It's it's bra- It's burned into my brain from my childhood because it played on our TV so many times when I was young. And I, the ending visual is so resonant with me of like you know the two kids dangling off a cliff and the mum has to save one of them and I kind of just spoiled how it ends, but that image is so ingrained into my brain. Um, but rewatching it now and, and talk about watching something after like years of studying film and having a bit more knowledge on film in general, a film like this, which <laughs> I don't think it's as bad as the reviews say it is. Mm. It's a very, it's a very like not formulaic script, but it's a very safe 
um, telegraphed script, like every single scene, you're like, oh, okay, th- here's this tree they have to climb and this is going to pay off in 30 minutes when like this person's going to fall off the tree and here's a dog that's going to pay off for this scene later when he's shooting the crossbow and like it's a very telegraphed, like, yeah. like you're watching, you're like, okay, well, this is that, this is that and you sort of spell it out. But what's interesting, I was reading a bit about the behind the scenes of this with McKellie Colton, Colkin, his father as like an agent in Hollywood, a big agent at the time because of Home Alone and obviously the success that his son's mm-hmm. brought in to the family, how he sort of got a hold of the film's production and sort of inserted his son in. It's like, oh, look, we could show that he can play like a really twisted up kid and it will show he's got range and they end up like rewriting the script to benefit him more and his sister ends up getting cast and ends up becoming this big deal where if they give like him a role in this film, he can do a Home Alone 2 later. It's like really orchestrated for a film that when you first watch it, you're like, wow, this is there's a bit of artistry here and it's about like, you know, inherent evil and children and, and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, mm. you read all about it, it's like, wow, this is like classic like Hollywood like tampering <laughs> and it's fine you, everyone look it up for the good son it's very interesting but um other than that zeke i can't say i've watched very much how about how about you what have you been watching yeah look i only watched a couple films that were both uh in their own rights quite long i actually caught uh 2019's uh justin kurtzel's the true history of the kelly gang mm. um which is on stan yeah um nick rams on stan look so. and it's funny because a couple of uh, close affiliates of mm. ours think this film very highly. Obviously, we put Nit Ram up there with, you know, Nit Ram was one of our star players last year on the yeah, show. We loved Nit Ram. Um, I didn't get too much from True History of the mm. the Kelly Gang, to be honest. Um, I actually did think it was quite elongated and bloated and, and quite... Um, it didn't provoke thought for me. I didn't find much meaning in it. Stylistically, it's got some big ticks. Yep. Um, uh, and quite, you know, quite stacked cast given, you know, it's an Australian production, you know, you've sure. got, you know, Russell Crowe in there and, um, Nicholas Holt, which I find it. And obviously Essie Davis. Um, oh, nice. And obviously starring. I think they're married. Him uh, and Essie Davis. Oh, you go. I fa- yeah, because she's obviously Nit Ram as well. Even Charlie Hunnam's in it for a bit. And, um, yeah, George, like a really quite a uh, large cast, but a lot yeah. of them only serve small um, parts of the story. Sure. Uh, time, move, time moves in a very odd way. And I, to be honest, I, I didn't, I thought it was quite bloated and, and didn't really have too much to say. Mm, um, that's a shame. Almost, it was storybook-esque in its structure and, and I didn't get too much from it myself. Um I think it was a very grand scoped thing, but didn't mm. have obviously the budget to kind of match it. Not saying it's it looks bad in any point in view, but it just obviously sure. it's, I think it was confined it a little bit. Okay, um, but that was that was sort of my take on it. The other film I watched sort of sits in the similar boat, mm. um, and a film that you, you sort of would think, oh, this could be quite promising. Um, it was the bad times of the, at the El Royale. Oh, I never caught this. Now, this has got a runtime of two. It's obviously from Drew Goddard, who um, did Cabin in the Woods. Mm, um, 95 okay. minute film, very positively received at the time yep. in 2011. This film's 141 minutes. It's <laughs> long, and it feels it. It's mm. not inherently a bad film. Um, it's got a lot of curiosities to it, um, an interesting sort of. 
structure that would have, in my opinion, immensely benefited from about 30 minutes taken off the okay. top. Okay. Um, I just, I get they're trying to give characters substance and it's sort of this, basically it's one of these sort of convergence things, a Pulp Fiction-esque convergence on a point, um, sort of narratives where um, we sort of really see the motivations for a, a bunch of different characters and why they end up at this hotel on this particular night. Yep. Um, in the it's like early one night 70s. In Miami. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely more Pulp Fiction-esque. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. In the sense that there, there's a big dramatic final sort of shootout situation. Mm. But yeah, obviously I, I don't think carries the same sort of weight or even like Pulp Fiction's quite tight. Like, time-wise like it yeah doesn't overstay it's welcome it's well it's, it is a long it's it's well over two hours but it's so it's such an enjoyable yeah. ride you're so invested in every individual scene in pulp fiction yeah so um, uh, it was okay it was okay i, I don't know okay. it's tough to recommend it if you've got nothing you want a nice little popcorn with a decent collection of actors performing yeah mm. you get enough out of it there you go but it is two and a half <laughs> nearly two and a half hours which is a lot to ask a lot of modern day audiences yeah um, no, that's fair enough yeah uh the only other thing i've been watching you got to tell me about this tv show yeah. you were referencing before so that's how i met your father um, oh okay interesting so obviously this dropped on disney plus and i've been dropping week i've now just checked it on disney plus they're saying new episodes every wednesday but the way episode nine finished it almost almost felt like it was going to finish the the season there was like well. A mid- it's funny you mention that because I will be mentioning how I met your father at the end of this show. But what's coming to streaming this week? There we go. Because so. there may perhaps be one episode left of the season. That's okay. <laughs> so uh, then I have a myriad of problems. Okay. For starters, this really goes to show. Um, so my problems concerned with things aren't concerned with affecting the original IP's property. Sure. Is um, this is this a prequel sequel? What's what's the deal with so this? So this is a spiritual sequel in the sense that okay. it has no affiliation with it's set in the same universe. Yeah. No affiliation with the original story. Okay. Um no direct affiliation. Like there is a cameo in episode nine from a like a D list sure. ensemble cast yeah. member from the original one. Like just a a kind of a throwaway. Oh, look, yeah. um, this this character's going to be in it, but it's like it's, none of the main yeah, cast, nothing it, like it's that. It's like the, the the leader of the pest patrol in in Breaking Bad shows up for like two episodes in Soul. It's like yeah, you most people wouldn't even know that's the same character. <laughs> yeah, is that the kind of that's sort level, of like yeah. yeah yeah or of Bill Burr showed up. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he still hasn't showed up, um, which is driving me insane. There's like ten episodes left. He still hasn't shown up. Um, <laughs> and it's sort of like, yeah, so it's that sort of case. Like, it's like, oh, that's cool. But it, I think what the problem is, and this really shows, and this can be for better or worse, but sure. the shows that have this new show, and I, I'm not even comparing it to its original show, because the original show was, for its time, was, was huge mm. from a popularity point of view, from a comedy point of view, from a risk-taking point of view, and... Obviously, we lived in a world that was, you know, in the the golden ages of your friends and your Seinfelds mm-hmm. and your How I Met Your Mother. The world was more politically incorrect, and we can you can actually watch those shows now and see some of that stuff. And some of it might, like, especially when you push into the Seinfeld era, will make you probably wince. But it, I think, 
the strange thing is, and it, somehow it's written by the same people, mm. but they've lost the elements that actually made their show hilarious. And it wasn't the risqueness. It was not um, the crudeness, it, but it's the it's the overcorrection and honestly the real stripping of character and substance. And um, I just uh, it just has nothing to give. It's like little things, like maybe it's a context of time, like the dating apps now get a big part in episodes, and you sort of like, wow, um, mm. if we come this far in fifteen, like. Tinder has to be brought up every singles like that's what dating is now because yeah. I don't there's think a dating... Tinder joke in the Uncharted movie yeah <laughs> for and God's it, sake it's just sort of the same thing where it feels like you've stripped everything of this character and really the only commonality is that it shares a very similar name and mm-hmm. sort of same sort of motif but and the at the end of the first episode they end up in the same apartment because it's a couple of years after the events of I think it's in twenty yeah. set in twenty twenty three how many mother ends in twenty twenty so right okay. well it, the main canonical story ends in twenty twenty they have like quick flash forwards yep um to wrap up the show but the the main narrative finishes in twenty twenty but to be honest yeah it just lacks any substance or character none of the characters are engaging they're all so they're a mix of that passive progressivism of, of Disney really feel like they've sunk their talons into this. And we now left with this show that's making no risks and won't make it past, make it to a second season or we'll make it to a second season, but it won't make it much further. I don't think, cause there's, right. there's really nothing like the end of nine is meant to be a, a cliffhanger. Then, but you just don't. You just, I'm just. I'm groaning. I like. I think I've laughed once in nine episodes, which for a sitcom mm. is. You no, should be getting that's not good enough. <laughs> should be getting nine laughs an an episode at least, and it's sort of like it. I'm not trying to hate it. I'm really not. Like yep. the fact that I've put nine episodes of effort into it, and I'm the only one I know that has done that, is like I'm. So everyone for, else has given up. Yeah, already. because Jeez, like the. Yeah. And it's sort of like one of those things where I'm, I'm waiting for it to, but it's so trying to be safe or correct and none of the characters are, they're either so one note, like one of them's British, so mm. everything he does is a Britishism and you just sort of like, <laughs> you sit there and go, it's like, is this writing for chumps? Like, it, mm. it's like, oh, it's funny because he's a fish out of water because he's in New York and he's a pretty... A yeah, that's British. literally course, the kangaroo jack thing that He's did. the most pompous British person. Yeah. And you're like, wow, you just shut... You know, it's uh, it's one thing to try and correct all these other, like the, the quote, misogy- like the misogyny in How I Met Your Mother. Sure. But the fact, the overt awareness of that, even at the time that they commented on how stupid that character was... Um to now be like oh we'd never do that and every character's got to be equal in it and every like it just for me it's just like at its core it's just not even funny like Mm. even like the the situations they find themselves in or or such like that you're just sort of like okay what's actually making me want to come back to this show because and to if you're you know if you're you know going to bring up at the end of the show that there's only one episode left in season one ten episodes for a sitcom that's not how sitcoms work Sitcoms are twenty. It's a very short sitcom. Twenty run, to twenty-two, yeah. maybe this in a pilot. This isn't like a season. drama or maybe, serialized drama. I was going to say maybe in a pilot season you get twelve. If you're like a really low budget show that's just trying to get the money to try and warrant twenty-two episodes, mm-hmm. like, but ten is that 
same sort of serialized format a drama shows take on 10 episodes is for your six sessions it's for these 45 minute episodes to mm. 45 to an hour not for a sitcom not for a 22 minute sitcom and it lacks yeah, they uh, shoot these things in a day like it's sort of it is honestly it's quite offensive that mm. they really are just shamelessly using the name to try and garner a sitcom's lifespan yeah. because they're not and apart from and then setting it in the same world, that's the only thing it has in common. Mm. And this is not because I've revisited How I Met Your Mother multiple times over age and still enjoy it because the writing was tight. It took risks. It had the and I could even argue that this is why things like Big Bang Theory got eleven seasons because they were willing to take risks in those earlier seasons. Like I don't care for Big Bang, but people loved Big Bang. Sure. Like, yeah. Like it, it, and it has meaningful characters and compelling stuff, but it's, it's that risk that you know people like. Uh, what's his, what is his name? Chuck. I think it's Chuck, Chuck Norrie. Norrie, Norrie, isn't it? Laurie? Laurie. Chuck Laurie, Chuck Laurie. Yeah. You know, he took the risk with Two and a Half Men too. You know, because mm. he was the showrunner for both. So it's like, I don't understand now where it's like they're so scared to to do that because we're. You mean you mean we're taking risks like like the jokes themselves? Jokes. Um. Even um, character complexities, like real mm. dri- like driven narratives or driving... Co- like real affirmative driving questions where I honestly feel like the, you could cut every boring aspect of a sitcom and put it in and that's what you've got for season one of How I Met Your Father. There's just nothing to grab onto. Yeah, yeah. Even And even in pilot seasons where characters aren't as refined, like I think of Community season one and it's... It doesn't find its footing until probably the last five episodes of season one. And it's a 22-episode thing. So it's like a lot of characters are kind of cringy in the first five or six episodes. It's mm. kind of tough to get through, which yeah. is why I'm willing to give it that little bit more time. But I'm at episode nine, and you've got nothing that's making me want to go back and watch episode ten. And yeah. I will watch it, but I'll just be pr- my point will just be proven. Sure. You know. Your arms will be crossed. Yeah. And then I'll just <laughs> become a preacher to be like, don't watch this show, because... Yeah. But not for the reasons you thought going into the show you weren't going to like it, but because it's just not a good show. Mm-hmm. And I think before I we move on, it's not like um, they need to be on television to be successful sitcoms because you look at things like Shit's Creek that had six seasons mm. on Netflix. So, you know, Netflix have been... Th- and they've got a couple more in there that I haven't watched, but... Oh, The Ranch got has had a successful five-season mm, run. So, yeah. it's like Netflix has achieved it. Well, it's funny because there's sort of... Obviously, Netflix's, like, stock went down a lot recently and they lost a ton of subscribers. And, and I was watching a video the other day that really analysed the differences between the shows they used to produce, you know, five years ago and mm. then the shows they produce now, where it's just... They don't give them the longevity to develop. Like, most Netflix shows nowadays barely do get a second or third season. Mm. Um, what's the um, what's the the bebop? What's that anime they they did? Uh, what's it called? A cowboy bebop. Cowboy bebop. Yeah, it's like well, that got one season. And they actually, yeah, that was good. Russian Dog got a second season. And no one's talking about because they haven't promoted it. It's like they used to be really good at this with House of Cards and BoJack got six seasons. Yeah, you know, and it's like I don't, I definitely don't think you need to be on television to be successful anymore. I think on on the contrary, I think it's actually easy to be more successful. I mean, look at Squid Game. Yeah. The amount of money that Squid Game would have brought in for Netflix, especially with seasons two and three on the way. But I think, I just think people 
doing these shows just they don't have the confidence to they don't have the patience anymore no because most shows need to get to a third fourth season to really start making money really start making an impact but uh just but not it honestly, i mean with that show it just feels like disney's just spurted out a yeah. show like they've they've gone into the vacuous machine that politically corrects and smooths everything over and ticks every <laughs> like it almost is a formula now <laughs> I want to, to see its, that machine like yeah. like it's just like ah oh, we need a, a sitcom what properties do we own hmm how i met your mother has <laughs> always needed a sequel show or a spiritual sequel yeah. show let's use father like we original uh, the original intention was to have two shows systematically running against each oh, other that's interesting and it was meant to be the convergence between ted and tracy at the end of the show but the 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 thing is, obviously, they couldn't get that up because you know, How I Met Your Mother had only had two seasons and it was still trying to build up traffic. But you know, like it really is. It's a bunch of people in a boardroom going, oh, "Okay, we have this property. We could do a spiritual sequel show mm. to this." Um, okay, well, now what diversity boxes do we take? Oh, okay, well, all the cast in the original show were all white. Um, so now we need to diversify that. As like your um, machine that politically corrects everything that goes through it. <laughs> I am <laughs> surprised. I'm surprised South Park haven't done some sort of joke on it. Like, and or they've done it probably in That's one way. It's a really good like image in my head. That's funny because it's like, oh, we got to tick all these diversity boxes. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, fourth wave feminism. We got to tick that box too. So we're going to do that too. So all of our female lead characters don't confide to seedy men doing stupid stuff. Fair enough. Okay, but that ticks that box. Moving on, next thing, it's like, it, it literally is a checkbox for them. Yeah. And what do we get? We get this show with no substance and people go, oh, it's not funny. It's like, yeah, because there's no risks. Because we live in a world now where actors can get up on stage and hit comedians because they're hurt by feelings and stuff. Which, to be fair, oh, the Grammys, did you see all the jokes made at the Grammys? No. There are so many hosts that went up there and made fun of Will Smith. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's just... so interesting. <laughs> He w- he wasn't at the Grammys, was he? he no, wouldn't, he wouldn't be. No. I feel like he he definitely would have been at previous Grammys back well, in the day. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and yeah. and that Will Smith <laughs> stuff, it's like it comes up occasionally now, but it's all been shadowed by the Johnny Depp stuff now, right? Like that's really yeah. That's you know, what, I've been watching that case a lot lately. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's gonna. It's the. This is so off topic, but it's like it. It looks like it's gonna be exactly what happened with the Carl Rittenhouse cases. The lawyers are terrible. Yeah, their lawyers are so bad. You just watch these anyway. But I've been watching that lately, but well, that's entertainment <laughs> news. No, well, that counts. What have you it's watching? On, it's on, it's I've on been watching the Johnny Depp case. <laughs> it's been it's on entertainment tonight. Oh no, yeah, I've just been watching those clips with like the psych and that. And the psych is oh my god, she's wonderful. She just destroys it. You kind of just like love to hate the Amber Heard like team because not I mean, obviously everything that's come in and you you know pick a side. I think the majority of people understand where the Johnny Depp side of it's coming from. But just, like, how incompetent Hurd's lawyers are. Isn't it crazy? It's fun to watch. <laughs> See, I'm not going to weigh in on that stuff. Sure. But um, how public it is all. Like, that's, to me... I think that was on purpose. I feel like Johnny like, Depp was like, let's make this as public as possible. It's, and it's because the public will eventually gravitate towards him when they will start watching this case. Yeah, truly fascinating stuff. Mm. I've only only really started diving into it uh, in the last day or two because yeah. everyone's been like talking. You about need it, to yeah. you need to watch this stuff, and I'm like, it's such a it's such a tenuous thing, and it's sort of like 
you really it really goes to show. But I do think it like it's it's relevant news to talk about on our show because we always you know, we talked about the Will Smith Chris Rock stuff and yeah, of course. You know, obviously we don't try and make a habit. We're not entertainment tonight, so we're not here to no, talk no, about no. The, and we don't we don't like to date these shows too much. No, but that being said, but a case like this might have ripple effects in the long run on the industry maybe because i'm watching it more from like i'm just fascinated by law and like mm. the idea of, of you know these lawyers making it how long until a movie's made out of it so oh no, not very long <laughs> not, <laughs> not very long at all back. <laughs> not very long at all yeah as you get Saul goodman to represent Emma heard yeah. <laughs> see how long that lasts yeah, no, it's interesting. I, at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm interested in the drama, but I'm also like, it's just dirty laundry, that it's only been made public because it's a public case. It's, it's about public reputation. It's about people's opinions on Johnny Depp slash Amber Heard. So it's like, it needs to be public to actually influence the public's thoughts on the situation. For sure. Like, what's the point of doing a case on character assassination, like privately? So I totally get it. Yeah. But it is dirty laundry at the end of the day. He said this, she said that. It's like, whatever. No worries. But, yeah. Well, Jake, you have anything to add? No. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. We're going into the 2010s in our countdown mm. through the decade retrospective. Jake, we had a poll to decide what we'd be watching this week. Who won the poll and what are we watching? Well, I will say that uh, between the two... Uh, options. One of them, of course, was Spotlight, which did not win the vote. I think it was by one point was the difference. And uh, I feel like we're going to get a lot of these one-point victories <laughs> throughout the next several weeks mm. as we go. But the film we are talking about this week is, of course, 50-50. A tumor? Yes. Me? Yes. Hey, that, that, that doesn't make any sense, though. I mean, I, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I, you know, I recycle. How do you feel right now? Fine. You know, I, I can't remember being so calm in, in a long time. Would you describe what you're feeling as a kind of numbness? No, describe it as fine. You're young. Young people beat cancer all the time. Every celebrity beats cancer. Tom Green. Guy from Dexter. Lance Armstrong. He keeps getting it. I'm moving in. No, Mom, no. I'm your mother, right, Adam. Wait, exactly. You want to make a room? Oh, thanks, I'm all right. There's weed in them. You got a prescription for medicinal marijuana? No, I got a prescription. Well, what's wrong with you? I have night blindness. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't have done this. Yeah, big mistake. Using your balls trimmers yeah. instead of going to a bar. I never watch them, ever. Hello? Hey, it's Adam. Adam? What, what's going on? I'm just probably having a nervous breakdown. What are your chances? It said 50-50. It's not that bad. If you were a casino game, you'd have the best odds. It's what everybody's been saying. You'll feel better and don't worry and this is all fine and like, it's not. You can't change your situation. The only thing that you can change is how you choose to deal with that. think that a girl's gonna go for me just because I have cancer. For the millionth time, yes! Great song. Totally. I have cancer. I was wrong. I was wrong. Nice it was, it was weird. It's yeah. weird like that. No, that's it's not, too it, soon. it doesn't sound cool. No. Inspired by a true story, a comedy centered on a 27-year-old guy who learns he has cancer diagnosed. Uh, 
of his cancer diagnosis and his subsequent struggle to beat the disease. Simple and effective, that one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Doesn't mention that he's a radio journalist. No. Although I don't know how relevant that is. Well, really. I have a lot, like a lot of, a lot of colleagues. Or, colleagues. Or I like it. Your, your term always changes. Colleagues. Colleagues. Friends of the show. Cinema side show alumni. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, they all think very highly of this film. Is this just the Joseph Gordon-Levitt love that came with 500 Days of Summer? Were you all just riding that highway? I don't I don't know. I mean, look, <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt obviously had, like, that, I guess, what, 2009 to 2000, maybe 13, if you want to be generous. Honeymoon. He really, yeah, he really mar- pl- placed his mark in the film industry in that, that specific time period. Um, I remember. I remember the first shot of this film was like, "Oh, is this actually Premium Rush? Is that the film I'm watching?" <laughs> when Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not, he wasn't on a bike in that one or in this one, I should say. I don't know. To be fair, though, looking back, I probably really overgraded this film, but I'm also not going to change it because this film is still very emotionally resonant with me. And this is someone who I've not really had much experience with cancer in my life at all. Mm-hmm. Um, my grand my grandfather died of cancer, but I was also way too young to comprehend that. So that's not where the emotion's coming from. But I don't know. There's something so simple and and elegant about this film, almost deceptive, Mm. I would argue. And I don't know if you would agree with that, but... Well, it's also the early onset cancer, I think, is the the key distinction this film wants to do. It's not Mm. about someone who's lived a, a long, fulfilled life and has sadly got a terminal illness in their latter stages. This is a young, in their prime person, yep. um, potentially being robbed of youth, life, and, and such. And I, too, same thing, same boat. I mean, one of my closest friends has had cancer, but I didn't um, know, yep, of yeah, course, yep. know him at the time when that happened. I knew him a year or two after... Um, at the t- you know his leg was removed so yeah, it's yeah. yeah in his leg so it's um which is also um different to this film because obviously being in his back it can't be it's not an amputation situation yeah no it's it's very much a 50-50 life or death um, situation and yeah so i i think there's always been that you know i've always talked to i have talked to um that friend about sort of that stuff because it's, this year actually is his 10th anniversary of being cancer free and wow um and you know and he's touch, not much older than us. Touch wood. He's twenty seven this year. Yeah. So um, we're both twenty five coming up soon. Yeah. So it's sort of like one of those things that um, you know, we've always, you know, you always kind of have that in the back of your mind that you hope that that never happens again. And mm, of course, I think maybe like a film like this might be definitely more resonant with him because it has walked that um line of it does have that comedy undertone mm. i think the casting of someone like seth rogan actually does help have that perfect balance of of levity meets seriousness i mean and we know someone like him is capable of seriousness with things like jobs yeah um this is actually before jobs but um yeah uh oh, well, to be fair i mean it's i mean that one's steve jobs steve jobs you don't want to get him mixed up with jobs sorry which, it's, no, it's, they came it, I out. Mean, they they did come out like at the exact same time, almost. <laughs> the Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle yes, film, yes, 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 um, in which we see quite a quite a serious him on in that, and so we know he's capable of that range. Obviously, at this point in time in 2011, he hadn't really done anything like that. We'd honestly just, like I said, seen him in p- predominantly mm. stoner comedies. He isn't funny people. 
um, I believe. Yes, I think so. Um, which came out two or three years before with Adam Sandler, um, mm. which people... So I think as a similar thing as a stand-up comedian that gets cancer in that. If I'm he gets something. I don't. Yeah, it's I can't remember terminal illness and that. But obviously being a bit older, something life-threatening. Yeah, I forget how stacked this cast is because you got like Dallas, you know, Bryce, Ellis, yeah. Howard, and Anna, Anna Kendrick, Kendrick yeah. which are both in earlier stages of their careers too. Um, I think they they only have one or two. They're both in the Twilight film before this. Ah, oh, that's funny. Um. Is Bryce Dallas Howard in Twilight? Yep. Oh, there you go. I mean, pff, don't quote me on Twilight. Apparently she's cast. in Spider-Man 3. Is she Gwen Stacy? Yeah, she's Gwen in, in the Raimi one. Spider-Man That's 3. crazy. Yeah? I just... Not that she has much to do in that film, but... <laughs> no. No. But that's sort of just right over my head. Yeah, look, and I think going into this film, I remember watching... Like I said, I'm much more recent with my memory of it. I enjoyed it. Sure. Didn't sort of came and took it and I ended up watching it once by myself and then actually have it at the tavern and I played it in the background. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> just to revisit some scenes, trying to figure sure. out what I liked about the film. I think it does have has a pretty good soundtrack, to be honest. I was like, I, 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 was think, I do think about the soundtrack a lot, especially, and again, to my point on Deception, the very first scene is a very, you know, guitar-heavy sort of fun jam. And mm. well, and like you said, in terms of the casting with Seth Rogen, they have that back-and-forth chemistry in that first couple of scenes mm. where it just feels very improvisational. And it probably isn't, but it really does set up to feel like just a rom-com of sorts before yeah. it obviously gets a bit darker. And the music, I think it, it very subtly and very appropriately shifts. It's still like guitar melodies and strums and whatnot, but it just hits the perfect note. I think they even have strings coming at the very end. So I, I was very cognizant of the soundtrack this time around. Yeah. And I quite enjoyed it. The same dude who did the Batman soundtrack, I'm pretty sure. Okay. I think so. Let me double check on that, it's, actually. It, it's, <laughs> it is, yeah, it's a well-put-together soundtrack. Um, and like you said, it, it does capture totality really well. Um, it's quite weird seeing the... Uh, the sort of slightly over it almost feels I know it's quite just mostly just too cold but it almost feels like at times like slightly overexposed um, look to it like it's mm. a very bright film it is yeah, um, yeah. a lot of the windows are um, it's, overexposed like the whites are whites yep um, and I find that really interesting sort of like the the desaturation of colour through kind of overexposure really um there's a really interesting aesthetical look to it and makes it quite cold and i'm just sorry i'm just looking at him now michael uh giacchino i Mm -hmm. i've actually never pronounced his name before just looking at some of his films so he did obviously the spider-man trilogy the recent one planet of the apes the more recent trilogy um super eight ratatouille the incredibles up obviously the latest batman this dude's oh and and bad times at the el royale look at that there you go (laughs) It's a very. This is a very different score, though, than pretty much all of those other films. Yeah. This is a much less flashy score. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to. to no, it's, it's uh, no problem with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I do think this, this film has like emotional resonance. Don't get me wrong. I think it. It just. It's. It's. I was admittedly I was a little surprised at one on the poll, and I've um, <laughs> going in. I was like, <laughs> I really thought we'd be doing spotlight. Um, yeah, like your spotlight T-shirt and, and cap on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no bias there. <laughs> you know, like what? 
Yeah, oh, I was really God. surprised. But no, I, I really enjoy the performances <laughs> from... Particularly, like, I, and I think this film is actually really well cast. Like, sure, yeah. that's a big tick for me. Like, I think Rogan, like, they're all exactly where you think them to be and, and a lot of them were in their acting renaissances or at least the 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 seminal years where they could stamp their uh, position in Hollywood like they'd been in stuff before this and we'd started they'd started to get noticed but I feel like for as particularly like Kendrick and, and and Dallas Howard this is like another one of those films that would have just notched in their belt and really started to push them to the forefront I know mm. Kendrick at this point had, had up in the air and I think the first pitch perfect and yeah, that might have been the following i was just thinking what year pitch perfect was um, um and then joseph Levitt. this is right in the middle between inception and dark knight rises so well she seems cast solely based on her performance and up in the air because oh, okay. it's almost the same sort of just in a different role but that innocent sort of kind-hearted person yeah yeah um which i think is her best like range i think she works really well in that range in particular um and I actually think Dallas Howard plays that kind of sort of like what I could only call a good on paper girlfriend <laughs> is probably the best way of describing <laughs> that's her. That's a good one, yeah. Um, and I think that that's an important thing. Like like you said, the one good thing about the dialogue, particularly in those earlier scenes, is that it feels that mix of almost that McKay sort of off-the-cuffness meets, um, or even up, up Judd Apatow to an extent, his off-the-cuffness. Yeah, very it. Judd Apatow, I got that sense. Um, but what's funny, because that's usually one of my big negatives in any comedy, is that it feels just like improv. I mean, when I saw The Bubble a few weeks ago, I hated The Bubble. I was like, this is just a bunch of celebrities making riffs at each other, and that's all the film's relying on in terms of its comedy, which is like, that's a bad thing for those films, but when I watch 50-50, I'm like... That's interesting because it feels like they're replicating that mm. almost to deceive you for those first few scenes. Obviously, assuming you go in knowing nothing about the film. Yeah. But yeah, it's. It, I think you're right. It's definitely tapping into it's that. A, it's a tricky one too, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, you think of how my cat... Like, I just watched, like, had Anchorman on in the background at work. And, oh, yeah. And yeah. it's like, that's all off the cuff. But it does have, like, a very concise plot it needs to hit. And that's yeah. probably why a lot of people like the first one more than the second one because it has just a easy to follow plot so a lot sure, of their yeah. off the cuffiness uh, still are mixed in with script points yeah. and i think that's the best way of balancing comedy Certainly one of the better examples of just all right actors riff away yeah but it's like those are like actual comedians as opposed to like mm. what no you're gonna i know i'm not even gonna say it <laughs> i'm not gonna put myself in that round i was gonna What's name it? i was gonna name drop a few people but um like, okay, when I watch, like, a film with, like, oh, look, it's The Rock and Kevin Hart together, and, oh, look, they're buddies, yes. but they're the sa- it's the same chemistry, it's, like, the same joke yeah. over and over again. As- well, that's how I feel with, like, Adam Sandler's and his merry band. Sure, yeah. Of Kevin James and... Yeah, no, they're very, very, very lazy comedies, for sure. Yeah. And, and I-, I think, and this film's not doing anything particularly interesting with, like the camera or the, or the lighting or even the edit. There's a few scenes with like very interesting stylistic editing choices that are not consistent. With in the this film, film we're talking about? In this film, in 50-50. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does have some swinging camera stuff too. Um, like mostly in the drug induced scenes is where we see most of the stylism. Yeah. There's a little, like the scene when they're all smoking. I think it's, it's Adam Kyo and, and the two older guys, Alan and, and Mitch and like the dialogue's not matching with the picture. And it, obviously it's in, Mm. forcing the sense that they're getting high and things aren't 
matching. Like, there's a few little stylistic elements there that I'm saying those aren't there for comedy's sake. Yeah. Like, those are there because it's like reinforcing the story and, and how the characters are feeling at the time. But in terms of the deceptive parts of the film where it's, you know, oh, look, it's two guys joking and, and riffing. Again, the camera's not doing anything overly attentive to make the yeah. joke. But that's because it's trying to follow that Judd Apatow formula, which I really do appreciate. Yeah. And I think a lot of the emotional weighty stuff is left for the Kendrick, um, Kendrick uh, Levitt relationship. Mm. I mean, I think it's a, it's a film that is very concise in what it wants to achieve. And I think it does it really well. I just, I think um, it's, it's sort of what you expect. Like you expect the heavier, weightier scenes to come from the interactions between Kendrick and, and, and Levitt. And I do think that they're like, they're a perfect balance between the two because his stoic nature that he generally has under that weird, like you, you originally see Joseph Gordon-Levitt and I think you almost see a boyish charm there, but often he's actually quite stoic in his delivery and yeah, reserved. Well, it's, I think reserve's a much better word for it. Um, mm. There's a great scene. It's not my highlight scene, so I'm happy to talk about it now. There's a great scene when it's him and, and Kyle are walking with Skeletor the dog Mm-hmm. And then they sort of get ambushed by this other girl and the dog. And obviously, Carl's like... Seth Rogen's wife, apparently. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, that's clever. At least wife at the time. Oh, I, I see. Don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, that, that's clever. But what I like is that, obviously, he's getting into it because that's his whole shtick is, like, almost using the cancer as, like, a, as like a selling point for himself and for them to get laid. And, and I actually have a lot of interesting things to say about Kyle, especially on this rewatch. Because I had a lot of thoughts about Kyle as a character and up until now. But that scene when Joseph got a levered He's almost like ambushed and and trying to avoid that socialness. Mm-hmm. He like hugs onto Skeletor. It's like very interesting what he's doing there when he's like almost crawling into a bubble, but using the dog as like a protective shield and protecting mm-hmm. him, the dog as well. And it's like that's such a great little nuanced moment of of him representing his shyness and his reservedness. Because mm-hmm. I think stoic, it almost like he, he's stoic in terms of he's hiding his feelings a lot of the time. Where the you know the therapist is like how are you? And he's like I'm fine, I'm yeah. fine, I'm fine. I want to talk about it, um, but I think reserves a really accurate word. Yeah, to describe him. I mean, it's probably it's why he's in that original relationship where he sort of yes. has no agency in it mm. and no he's voice. always making excuses for her. Um, you know, because re- it's that thing where it's like commodity, commodity, making attractiveness a commodity in which that she's really attractive, so I'm okay because she's really attractive, right? And and that was sort of what his justification was. Um, and so I'd like to dive into your thoughts on Kyle then, because that's a that's yeah, an well, interesting thing to explore. So, I mean, that really is the majority of his character, is this idea that he's basically using his friend and his cancer as like a pickup line, essentially. And that's what a lot of the film is. I have to say, and again, I've seen this film many, many times over the last decade, even mm-hmm. since it came out. This was the only time I watched the film. I almost had zero problem with Kyle as a character. And I feel like the entire time the film's mm. trying to beat you over the head with he's a selfish asshole. And then you have a bit of a reveal at the end when he when we see the book in his bathroom and it's like, oh, he actually has been affected by this and he's doing the research and writing the notes. We'll get into that later. But I it's was just having coping. no issue with him at yeah. all. Yeah, no. Because it's, I, I think the that wave of emotion and thought is exactly the way you're supposed to go. But it's, yeah. it's one of those things that what his character's trying to do and what maybe what this film does so well is is you know 
the the character of Kyle's not a guardian guardian angel friend, <laughs> like, and he doesn't need to be because yeah. he's human. He's an um, honest friend, though. He really yeah. is. Yeah, like he thinks his, you know, he thinks it's a uh, at the start. He thinks that the relationship with Dallas Howard's character is is a waste of time, and mm. and he will unashamedly, yeah, use like hitting on his friend, but it's. It's also like the like we we find out very early these guys have been childhood friends so like they yeah have, it's insinuated that yeah they've been friends for ages yeah because they went to high school together at right, least right. oh yeah of course because he doesn't remember who he went but yeah you're right so they've been friends for at least 10, 15, yeah. maybe twenty years yeah, yeah so Kyle and Adam have a really strong relationship so his selfishness in the moment it's yeah it's a bit it's a bit wrong but would your friend not kind of do that like well, I think it's one of those things that. Um, it's his sort of way of coping with it, I guess. Is, yeah, yeah. Is normalizing. Oh, I'm just using my friend as a platform. My friend's always going to be there, and he's going to get annoyed at me. And it, I think it's... I think you're right. And like, yeah, definitely a so uh, uh, coping mechanism. But the, when I rewatched it, I was like, he's not really being all that selfish at all. Because a lot of the time, yeah, he's sort of putting his like thoughts and what a good time is onto his friend, onto Adam of like, oh well, uh, you know, we'll both get laid. It's also about me. Like, we'll both get laid. But there's a genuine care there. And it's yeah. you go to the start of the film where he's talking about, you know, oh, well, him and Rachel are sleeping together. She's not giving him blowjobs. And, you know, it's funneled through this, like, idea of, like, oh, well, you know, you guys aren't having sex, so clearly something's wrong. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is there is clearly something wrong with the relationship. There is miscommunication mm-hmm. there. There is obviously something that Adam needs that Rachel is not giving him in that sense. And, and I'm not saying, like, oh, she's not... You know, she's not giving him the blowjobs. How dare she? I'm just saying there's generally something being miscommunicated in this yeah. relationship that, that Seth Rogen's character is picking up on, but he just words it in a way that Adam finds selfish and, and like, dumb. Like, oh, well, this is what a real real relationship is like. I was like, well, not necessarily. Yeah, and then you could argue, I mean, like, in that point, that's Adam being elitist. Well, exactly. Like, I mean, it's that perceptile thing where it's like, you know, like, if the shoe was on the other foot, how would Adam act? in if um you know kyle had been the one with cancer instead and yeah it's sort of like one of those things that you know we find out you know when adam gets his diagnosis it's like he doesn't drink or he doesn't smoke like he Hmm. like he he, very mild-mannered like (laughs) it's that sort of like he thinks that if he does sort of everything articulate and right compared to a bit more of a volatile natured kyle there's that injustice there and um i think that there's that real balance there but yeah, I, I agree. I don't think anything Kyle's doing is, is like long term selfish. Like I, don't I, think he's I a generally friend. don't think so at all. Like rewatching it, I was, and maybe it's just like now that I'm a bit older. My guess is the last time I saw this film was probably first year uni. Yeah. So that wasn't that long ago. That was actually that's about five years ago now. Holy shit! But um, the reason I say this is because I actually wrote a short story in first year English that was it was about this idea of, of abiding by the rules of a traffic light and mm-hmm. that someone's parked at this red light and they're waiting for it to turn green even though there's no one at the intersection, which is exactly what happens at the start of this film. Like, I know for a fact that this is where I got the inspiration from. So I was like, all right, it's been at least five years since I saw this film. But maybe I just appreciate, as someone that's a bit older now, a friend who's just honest mm-hmm. <laughs> and doesn't, you know, there's no BS in, in what he's saying. Yeah. And like at the very end, when he has these, uh, when when Adam has these like big breakdown in the car, which is just, I mean, that's just a fantastic scene. 
But when he turns to him, he says, oh, you've been a selfish friend, blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's unfair. That's the first time I felt like that was unfair when he said mm. that. So it's very interesting, the shift I've had on, on Kyle's character in mm. general. There you go. But yeah. Um, I guess we can talk a bit about Rachel since it plays into that. Obviously, she ends up cheating on him. Um, it, it's interesting because, like, like, like we said, he sort of makes excuses on her behalf, especially with the not wanting to go into the hospital because it's an energy thing. She doesn't want to mix those worlds, which is such a, like, that's a, such yeah, a lame I, excuse. I think I think <laughs> her character, unfortunately, although I get the intention of her character, she's such a obvious, like, means to an end character. Yeah. Like, she really yeah. is just paving the way for Anna Kendrick's character. Um, Does this make more sense knowing that the person who wrote this film wrote it about themselves. Does that make the character of Rachel more sense? Because it kind of makes more sense to me now that I think that. Like, like there's an, like a perceptile agenda there? Like, the guy's writing about a relationship that he himself went through and puts her in a fairly Very, bad light. <laughs> well, not, nothing, not, no forgiving light, really. Yeah. Because it's, it, all it is is uh, the only reason she stays with him or... Um, is totally on perception of others. It's that mm. how does she look to the rest of the world if she breaks up with him because she he's just got cancer. Given yeah. her an out and she takes the out. And that's really fascinating, isn't it? Because it's like if you were put in that position, is is that wrong to do that or is that right? Like What she's you, doing? Well, I mean... What she, what she does when she elongates it, yeah, it's right, wrong. Yeah, yeah. Like, and she's a hundred percent framed as this film's not even antagonist, just like yeah, a, an no. obstacle. I mean, I mean, the the film doesn't like completely bash her over the head, but when you sit back, it's like she doesn't really do anything that redeeming. Like that's what I said. She yeah. means an end or just yeah. a yeah. means to pave the way for Kendrick's development, like that relationship's development, yeah. um, and. That's just apparent. Like, that's maybe why I forgot she's even in this film. Sure. Like, or yeah. at least more concisely, Bryce Ellis well, Howard. Yeah, it serves that thing of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character being like, why me? Like you yeah. said, like, I don't smoke and yada yada. I follow the rules. You know, when the light's red, I don't cut through yeah. like the other guy does. Like, it's all about just things are unfair for him. And she just sort of is part of that pile that, <laughs> that the yeah. film puts on. Um. Yeah, I think maybe that, in my opinion, detracts from the film because I think you could make a more um, fair and balanced character. You know, it's like we just talked about the the complexities and intricacies of, of Kyle's character and yeah. how perception means that he's inherently right and wrong, which mm. mean you know, that means we have a complex character that sparks conversation debate. Yeah. But... Her character is so one note, and by one note it means that there's nothing to like about her. She's fake. She's very clearly like when at the table with um, Adam's parents, mm. when he says he's got cancer, is only like I'll support him, yeah, <laughs> because I'm in front of his parents. Yeah, he gives her that look, but like almost a cue before she actually says that. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, no, she's just not into it. <laughs> so it's like, what, what's to like about her character? Which means like, oh, she's one note. Whereas like, you know, one thing to, you know, we just talked about how Kyle on the surface is, is hitting on women and stuff, but then is researching stuff. Yeah. So it's, that's a complex, nuanced character. Whereas her character is just a means to enable. Yeah. And, and you, you could definitely 
give us as the audience like something else to to grab onto with her because it's like that I can even just that situation if you're in a relationship with someone and he's a nice guy but you're just not like you're kind of ready to move on you're not quite sure when to do it then he gets cancer and now it looks really bad for you to like dump him there mm. like there's a way you can angle that in the film's script where you as an audience do feel bad for her or you can relate to that scenario well, but the film doesn't what try to what if she breaks to. up because she's overwhelmed and she's just not the person for that like that not that crisis person like like what if the big thing is what if the relationship looks squeaky clean on the surface which it didn't from the get go yeah the film diagnosis. makes it very clear this is not a lasting um, relationship and it's the diagnosis that unravels or really just shows the problems that were already there yeah but we didn't know about those problems until post diagnosis because mm-hmm. it unravels whereas like there's like more interesting it, ways to do it I agree yeah, yeah in which you make her more empathetic and the fact that this diagnosis has only enabled enables the breaking point rather yeah. than like they probably would have reached that breaking point eventually this just sped the process up exactly whereas we know they're going to break up by the midpoint of this film like you just know it because in the first five minutes we're like okay well she's a, she's kind of been angled like this kind of control freak or on her terms sort of person he has no agency and first thing is we introduced to his friend and what is his friend doing she, saying the same thing yeah. saying the saying what the audience thinks yeah um so it's pretty phoned home at that point <laughs> so it, i, I yeah. don't have much positive to say on that because i feel like we've we've seen how powerful quartet performances can be sure yeah especially when the the dynamic between say those four characters are so interestingly interwoven mm-hmm. and like i said with this film earlier it's it's a lot more simple than i necessarily remembered it being in that sense and it kind of goes to the film's editing and pacing overall which i might that was my thing is like it's a really well-paced film and that it's mm-hmm. in, it's engaging and i'm enjoying it and it's kind of going by fast i'm not checking my watch like i'm interested in these characters but it also doesn't go out of its way to do for example um adam's mother who is you know very overbearing and and mm-hmm. like wants to get involved in this process she's only ever overbearing when she's in the film the film doesn't really necessarily try and have her presence loom yeah. over every single scene and like these things are becoming claustrophobic for Adam. It's just kind of whenever she calls him or is in the room and then her character is just overbearing. Um, which I, I don't think that's... It would make for a more interesting film, probably. But I think it's part of the film's pacing. of It just, it just kind of wants to get you invested in these characters to a, to a certain degree. Um, but again, that's really all I have to say about his mother in particular, other than same as, as Carl, there's that reveal of, oh, well, she's in a, a support group for parents of people with cancer. It's almost like every emotional reveal in this film is that the characters' behaviours, which seemingly haven't changed pre-diagnosis, have actually changed. And that she's gone to a support group, or that Kyle's like read into it and wrote the notes in the book and actually does care about his friend's well-being. Mm. Um, it's coping. Which, yeah, which are great great little emotional moments they and work on me it's but. the nuance of the i mean that that like you could and not if this is intended or not but this mm. is that 50 50 perception isn't it i mean it's uh, it's on the surface versus what's behind the scenes <laughs> both sides of the coin yeah there's a lot i mean there's a lot you <laughs> could do with the you 50, just had like time. a head jump there of like you almost realized your pun like 10 seconds after you made it yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we need a video podcast that was great oh god yeah now well look i i'm kind of with you, I look. I for someone who gave what four and a half star review on this film, 
I that's definitely more of like a personal preference of like, this film is just a special place in my heart. Yeah. It's a very simple but, you know, well crafted film and learning about, you know, how intricate, you know, the director and the writer and Seth Rogen that like learning about the behind the scenes of that project like, oh, this is actually just a really this is really just a pet project for these guys. That just so happened to find, you know, I think it was eight million dollar budget, which is still a relatively small budget mm-hmm. for a film that I think it went on to like, maybe thirty five million. It definitely like made its money back and, and was a success and people generally liked it. So it, it worked on that front, but I almost appreciate it even more learning that it is a pet project and mm-hmm. it was a small little indie film, as they say. <laughs> no worries. Jake, what was your highlight scene? Um I would say we mentioned it briefly, but the scene when He's first having the brownies, or the dope brownies, and then he's walking through the the hospital hallways, the and he's POVs. The music is great. His POVs blurred, and he's like laughing at the misfortune of others. It's such an escape from what. And it has that hard cut to him spewing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, that I I I like that scene a lot because it is a different sort of etch. Yeah. The other one I have to say is Adam hunched over editing the sound waves at the start of the film. Like, oh, that's us doing the podcast. <laughs> I would have to say my highlight scene mm. was probably the first introduction scene between Kendrick and, and Levitt. Um, I think okay, yeah, it's sort of what I'm talking about when I'm saying that how well Kendrick's... And it's funny that apparently on set she was saying this that her character was the worst therapist in the world because she's like breaking every rule. Um, <laughs> she definitely is, yeah. But she's young, you know, and like we buy it. She's yeah, what, three years younger than Adam is himself, and and the thing I really liked as well, talking about, I don't think this is the first interaction, but it's one of the first, is when she keeps touching his knee, yeah, and it takes her a long, a lot of cues to be like, I should stop touching his knee, <laughs> because it's like despite what the rule book in her head says, like no, this is to establish relationship between doctor and patients, like no, no, no. Your patient is telling you he doesn't like this. I like how long it takes for her to get that that hint. Yeah. So yeah, that's not quite the first interaction, but I'm with you. It's a cool yeah. one. And it's just uh, it's interesting because you have that power dynamic there. Levitt's coming in with the I'm fine and yeah. sort of picking at the fact that he's the third patient and mm-hmm. um, it's like what happened to the other two and it's like she almost does give away information. Like she just vomits it out. Yeah. And she goes oh, like she tries to hide behind it. She doesn't almost she doesn't feel like a therapist. She almost feels like a carer. In that scene, yeah, um, or like a social, like a social worker, social worker, yeah, yeah, and it is interesting exploring their sort of dynamic because it's sort of the sort of the inverse of something like Goodwill Hunting, where it's like the maturity <laughs> is so clearly highlighted. Yep, yep. So, so she's yeah underprepared. She still was, ends up dating a patient, so that's inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I I will say, and again, I I love this film, but it. There is a. It's so simplistic that it is kind of easy to pick at it in a lot of ways. The scene when they not they don't really confess their love, but he's on the phone and like, oh, I wish you were my girlfriend. I think you would be a good girlfriend. It's like oh, this kind of feels really inappropriate. He's really lucky that she's liking this. <laughs> oh, but anyway, it's fun. It's it's cute. Yeah. It is. Don't date your therapist. No. Try not to, at least. Yeah, no worries. Well, 50-50 is currently out on... Stan. Stan. And DVD, Blu-ray, all that. Oh, and, and Prime if you pay for it. There you go. <laughs> well, speaking of those platforms, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Well, since I already mentioned, I'll mention it again. The How I Met Your Mother Season 1 finale concludes. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. Oh, no! No, I did it. <laughs> I Met Your Father Season 1 finale. As oh, well as, well as the... Uh, I know. I'm sorry. 
as well as the Moon Knight season one finale. Those are both coming to Disney Plus. What the heck was Moon Knight? It's uh, it's Marvel. Okay, <laughs> that's all you need to. I don't I don't I don't know a single person who watches it. Everyone is so done with Marvel. Thank God. Although there is a Marvel property coming out this week, I think a lot of people are going to watch. <laughs> I'm so glad we're in just, the countdown. Just, just uh, I, know, I know we can't do it. <laughs> we yes. can't do the Doctor Strange. <laughs> Yo, this is a big week for cinema, but we'll we'll get there in just a moment, Zeke. Yeah. I also want to talk about films like Shudder, Bohemian Rhapsody. You just mentioned it, which came to Netflix recently, is now coming to Disney Plus. Also, the non-Scorsese take on a Howard Hughes's life story with rules don't apply. So that's all Disney Plus right there. You got uh, The Suicide Squad, The Suicide Squad, important distinction right there, coming to binge. Sounds exciting. And coming to Paramount Plus, of all places, is Never Seen Again, which these two innocent women held captive in a small outdoor shed by their psychopathic kidnapper. And as the families, friends, and the FBI conduct a search, the two women must rely on each other to stay alive. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Now, coming to cinemas. But a bit more exciting this week, Zeke. So, like I said, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse Madness does release this week. Uh, I guess it's continuing the far, the No Way Home multiverse thing. Thank you, next. Thank, no, thank you, next. Hey, look, it's directed by Sam Raimi. So that's that's exciting. Uh, yeah. He's a great director. All right. <laughs> no way for all of Raimi's personality to be stripped clean. <laughs> and, and you all sit there and try and slowly pick at what was. <laughs> that's a really... What was Sam Raimi? Yeah, that was a Burns. Like, I love it. Thank you. That was really good. <laughs> His personality chipped away by the Disney machine. Yeah. Yeah, they're going on and on about... um. The fact that the film's going to get banned in Saudi Arabia because there's a gay character or a gay kiss in it or something or other. I'm like, wow, Disney's so special. for not, They're not... But this is it. This, they're willing to do that. That's the thing. They, they, it's like they cut those... The same thing in episode nine, like mm. where they cut them out in Chinese audiences because exactly. they care more about making the money than actually taking a stance. That's what passive-aggressivism is. It's like... It's only on their terms what will make them the biggest buck, and that's why they're not a good like organization. They're just yeah. not. <laughs> I'm telling you, you fly over to China tomorrow and you watch Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, you're not going to see that scene in there. No. But they're going to brag about Saudi Arabia because it's like, well, they were never going to make that much money from them anyway. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't make that decision. Yeah. So, guys, stop. stop. Disney don't care about you. Guys, just stop. Just stop, please. But, hey, you know, like they'll put stuff out like Encanto for... And the songs are good. Zeke's dislike for Can- Encanto returns. You know the funny thing? And I, I, I can't wait to go to Disneyland again for something like that. Like, <laughs> that'd be so much fun. Everyone but, loves Disneyland on this show, yeah. But don't tell... No, I, I'm, I'm not here being like, boy, how progressive. Um, no, I can't wait how progressive this billion dollar... Like, quadrillion, billion dollar... <laughs> An amount, a cabillion amount of money. Yet they'll what was it? What was it? They using like internment camps in China when they were shooting Mulan and yeah, stuff like something that. like that. Oh god! Or they, they were just shooting on the land. Or, yeah, it was. They really don't, guys. They don't care. Just, just believe it. Let it go. Let it let it go. Just watch yeah. the movie. The only Disneyland I want to go to is the one in the Florida project. Yeah. Even then, that's that's was like the hotel outside it or um yeah. I'll just stick with that because they've got like a Sean Baker was here sign. I'm, I'm sure they do. Yeah, 
I've seen pe- people go to that hotel and take photos, and they've left all the color in, which is awesome. Awesome. They've obviously that like, colored it and left it there, which is which is sick. But anyway, let's move on. They, by the way, these all come out on the same day. These all come out on I think Thursday the fifth. So keep that in mind. How to please a woman, which yeah has a special screening at Luna on Thursday the fifth. Sees a fifty-something woman launch an all-male house a cleaning service. Um, now this is cool because it was shot locally. It was shot in Frio predominantly, and we have several friends of ours, uh, including people who've been on the show, like Stephen Clark, who've worked on that film in some capacity. So that's cool. That is very cool. I think it's just the special screening. It might not come out wide for another week. I think it has been screening at festivals prior to this. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, I could definitely, you know, Zeke, what did you watch the other day? Ten Ways to Get Rid of Your Guy. What was the film called? Ten uh, Ways to... Ten, uh, How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. Well, this is the reverse of that, How to Please a Woman. Well, so uh, if we watch this film before they watch that film, we'll still be in relationships by the end of the week, Zeke. There so you go. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> also coming out this week is The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson, which sees a lonely bushwoman who must run her family's farm after her husband goes away. And finally, Zeke, mm-hmm. it is about damn time, the damn time, that Petite Maman releases, which I'm personally excited about because it is Celine Skamai's follow-up film to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I am so bloody ready for this film. Let's go. Have you bought your tickets? I've not. But um, Zeke, what do I? Well, obviously that's the first thing I watch on Thursday. Yeah, obviously. Petite maman. Petite maman. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing it's great. I hearing it's very cute as well. It's about oh, nice. Eight year old girls. Oh, so what was your what was your question? Did I have a question? Oh no, well, we're saying what? Other than that film, what's the first one I watch? Because these all drop on the same. Uh, day. Drove his wife. I like the trailer oh, for sound- it. Oh, you seen the trailer for it? Yeah, that was on the that trailer came. That was on when I was watching uh every every oh. everything everywhere all at once. Oh, nice. Yeah, looks good. Cool. I only got horror films. Kind of got a bit, <laughs> look, it's got a, a low-key Nightingale vibe, but it looks very way more soft than Nightingale. Interesting. Like that, like that. Next, not an R. I think not, it might be an M2 and MA. Yeah, gotcha. That's okay. All. Nice. Interesting. I'm about it. Uh, all for the Australian period pieces. Yeah, very good. All right. Well, That's that... the one I'd be going for, but definitely I'd want to do p- Petite Mama. Yeah. Said. Yeah. That'd be good. The big fan of Portrait. Very, very excited for that film. Well, that's it, Zach. It's a big week for cinemas and a little, little baby week for streaming. No dramas. Well, it's time for us to move into the 2000s for our countdown through the decades retrospective. Jake, another tight poll this week, but what I, are we watching? Once again, by one point. And uh, as much as I love Little Miss Sunshine, we're not going to be talking about it next week. But that's okay, because we're talking about... I mean, hey, good challenge. Very good films to pick up against each other. And I haven't seen this one. You, you've seen this one, yeah? Oh, this is like my... Oh, here we go. This is the... the just FYI. This is your Little Miss Sunshine? This is the <laughs> film when someone comes up to me and goes, what is your favourite film of all time? This is that Whoa. film. The first film I bring up. Not that it would be, but it's the easiest one to be like, this is the film. Damn. Your biggest recommendation. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, next week on the show, again by... A tight one point. This is a good decades challenge thus far. We're watching Almost Famous. Hello. This is the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. This is William Miller. Yes, it is. I think you should be writing for us. From Cameron Crowe, writer-director of Jerry Maguire. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock star. Just make us look cool. 
God, it's gonna get ugly, man. They're gonna buy you drinks. Don't take drugs! They're gonna fly you places for free. It's Bowie! You're gonna meet girls. We are not groupies. We don't have intercourse with these guys. Just blowjobs, and that's it. Amen! 15-year-old William Miller accompanies Stillwater, a rock band, on their tour in order to write an article about them, and all the while learning about relationships. How very vague. Mm. Which I like. So I'm not going to say a single word. Good, good. I'm very excited. I've been being told over and over and over again to watch this film. My boss has been on my ass the last week about watching this film. This film, <laughs> if 50-50 was your teenagehood, Almost Famous would be mine. Ooh, so, I like the segue. Very good. Um, very good. Yeah, this is like the dream for a 15-year-old, I think. But we won't talk about it any further. Mm. Until then... Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Almost Famous. I wanna be famous. Total Rama Island.